Hello, you're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. With Ali Maxwell and with George Ellick, we've been battered and bruised by the Yule season, I think it's fair to say, and off the back of a, a big old session yesterday, but couldn't wait to sit down and record another podcast, George, because it was a hell of a weekend of action. In fact, there was midweek action as well since we last spoke on the Monday pod. Certainly in the championship, it felt like one of the best days of championship football that we've seen for quite a while on Saturday. Yeah, lots of drama. Shame I was uh, freezing my toes off in uh, Stadium MK uh, whilst it was all unfolding, but um, obviously I've caught up on it. And yeah, as you say, lots of drama. The, the Birmingham-West Brom uh, derby didn't disappoint at all, although I suppose Birmingham fans would have certainly left disappointed that their team squandered a, a 2-1 lead um, to, to lose that game 3-2. We've, of course, got the Leeds-Cardiff game. We don't normally talk about draws, but I have a feeling we're going to be talking about that one. Um, Sabri Lamushi's Nottingham Forest continues to uh, show maybe what their true colours are or their true level is this season with a, with, a, with a disappointing defeat and a bad run of form and a goal fest at Barnsley. So plenty to talk about. You took your nephew to MK Dons Oxford. Uh, he supports the Premier League team. Do you think he will be excited to go to another EFL <laughs> match with his uncle at some point? It's probably the most, I mean, except for Shrewsbury last Saturday. It's probably the most boring game of, of Oxford season so far. Um, and at least, you know, we didn't lose the Shrewsbury game, but um, but we'll talk about it later. But he, I think he quite enjoyed it. It was so cold and it was a bad game. He still left afterwards saying he wants an Oxford shirt for Christmas. So oh, that's nice. We'll see. Well, nothing like uh, a an hour-long discussion of EFL football to blow the cobwebs off things. We hope you are well. If you're listening to this, no doubt also enjoying a, a hectic period, as are the teams and players of the EFL. We'll start with the championship it was a double game week, as I mentioned, and we're going to touch on who came out of this very well and who's maybe having a tough lead up to the Christmas period. Starting at the top, George Leeds and West Brom both picked up four points in the last week. Uh, a couple of notables here, I suppose. West Brom now with a 12-point gap between themselves and third place and 10 points for Leeds. Should have been 12, but giving up a three-goal lead against Cardiff. I don't think it's... It'll surprise many of the listeners to hear that we're not overreacting to, to this. We think it's more of an aberration than anything else, albeit you know, not taking anything away from a spirited comeback from Cardiff and a, and a poor half hour from Leeds. But I think we kind of just have to talk about Lee Tomlin here, don't we? Because as individual performances go, as individual flashes of brilliance go, that was something that really stood out from the weekend. Yeah, I, I mean that was the difference. I think um, you know, and anyone who's <clears throat> seen the the highlights from the from the weekend's action will know that Tomlin's two bits of skill, the first being a very very deft lob um, to to score the first goal to get Cardiff back into the game when they were three 0 down in the first half, and then a ridiculous kind of flying flick um, with you know with his it's like a, a a back heel in the air in mid air flick through first time uh, first perfectly time. weighted and I think the thing is with Lee Tomlin is, is that we know that he's got that ability um, I think even Neil Warnock who obviously didn't find much of a use for him um, for the most time at, at Cardiff uh, always kind of knew the talent that he had a hit you know had at his disposal he obviously has been lacking physically uh, in the past but he seems to be much fitter this time around and you know for a team like Cardiff who came up against a superior side and were largely outplayed um, to have someone who can do things that not only other people can't do but also you can't defend mm. um you know there's nothing you can do about either of them that made the difference uh i saw him play on wednesday i was at the brentford cardiff game brentford won 2-1 tomlin played from the start and look he didn't do anything quite on this level that he was able to do at ellen road but whenever he got the ball you could see his class showing and everyone that's ever worked with him talks about it fellow players managers as well Every touch was just a very high level, well-cushioned first touches. And you can see him just thinking one step ahead of everyone else. His passes were clever. There's been a lot made about the fact that he's lost two stone since the off-season. And it's notable how well-weighted his passes are as well. And uh, just a clever, clever player. He's got his limitations. I think that's fair to say. I saw a Leeds fan getting some stick on Twitter on the weekend because at 3-0 he tweeted something like... Gosh, isn't it funny watching Lee Tomlin trying to press our defenders? <laughs> and look, obvious limitations, but uh, we should celebrate a player at this level who can do such fantastic things. And that was a brilliant part of a brilliant weekend. West Brom, as for them, George, another come-from-behind victory. 
Uh, another failure to keep a clean sheet as well. Only five this season. There are many teams in the championship that have kept more clean sheets than them. The flip side being brilliant goals from their exceptional squad and Bilic's subs doing the difference again, which seems like a real feature. I'm trying to work out how to spin this. Do, do we do we show much concern about this defensive West Brom? Do we show concern that they keep going behind in games? Or do we celebrate them as a team full of character and full of individual quality with a manager who's clearly adept at making the right substitutions? I think there has to be a concern. I mean, what I would say is the defence has definitely improved since the start of the season. Um, you know, they conceded a, a goal against Swansea, but in a performance where they were totally dominant. And that goal is, is basically a footnote on the game. Here, Maxime Collard has put in an incredible cross for a six-foot-six striker who isn't going to miss those kind of chances. So again... You can't really legislate for that. So, I mean, I'm sure that Slovan Bilic will, will be very keen to get them back on, back uh, keeping clean sheets again. But I don't think there's anything to get too concerned about, unlike earlier in the season when they couldn't keep a clean sheet. I think now the defence is a lot more solid. And I think Bartley and uh, and Semi Ajay are, um, you know, have created a very good partnership. And part of the reason why West Brom are so good this season is because of their fullbacks. Um, it was Townsend uh, who started on, on Saturday, but normally Furlong and Ferguson, providing... And a really good attacking threat down both flanks. Um, so in a way, the, the style of football that they play is always going to open them up a little bit mm. to, to some defensive issues. Um, but on this game, I, I just wanted to... I don't think Charlie Austin's first goal has got the credit that it deserves. Probably not. It's an unbelievable strike. I think if you made a, a goal of the season um, shortlist now, uh, that would have to be on there. The first touch is deliberate. It's not one of those where it's kind of flicked up on him. He's deliberately... Um, got the ball rising so he can meet it on the half volley spinning. Um, it reminded me very much of a goal that Mark Rule scored against Cambridge about 15 years ago. From Niche. Um, but it's, I mean, and thinking of the circumstances where he's really struggled for goals uh, from open play, he's really struggling to, to force Hal robson Carno out of the team, which I think he wouldn't have expected to happen when he joined the club. Um, so to come off the bench uh, and score two goals against your rivals, one of which is an absolute, you know, wonder strike. Um, I guess man of the weekend probably goes to Charlie Austin. Although you know his celebrations a bit naff, isn't it? With the with the, with the fingers in the ears. It's but. not my favourite, I must admit. Uh, let's go through a couple of teams who went two for two in the last week since we last spoke on the Monday pod. We'll start with the team who are in third place. George Preston North End certainly a win against Luton uh, on Saturday. The winning goal about as ugly as you'll get, and potentially an ugly victory. Uh, but any cries about? Preston plummeting down the table well they've been arrested uh, the slide has been arrested this <laughs> week rather uh, and there they are in third place Alex Neil afterwards saying when you consider how good West Brom and Leeds are and there we are below them in, in third place it's it's it was a strong week for them and potentially the vulnerabilities they showed as a as a result of injuries um, just starting to, to to get back to full fitness and, and get back to where they were yeah, I, I think there's quite quickly uh, the gulf between the quality in terms of the top two and the rest is becoming obvious. I mean, I, I'm pretty amazed that Preston are still in third position given that run of, of four defeats, I think it was, without scoring a goal. Mm. I think if you can have four defeats and not score and remain third, I think it says a fair bit about the about, about the um, the league itself. And you can say the same about Fulham, who are on a... Tricky run after this week, but there they sit, still in sixth position. Um, but for Preston, you know, it's obviously really important for them to get back to winning ways. Big for them to get back on the score sheet as well. Uh, and you look at the, the the players they have in their kind of final third, you know, with Brown and Bowden and Gallagher and Pearson and Maguire. I mean, there's basically threats everywhere. David Nugent playing up front, I don't think offers too much. Um, but obviously, Jaden Stockley came off the bench to, to grab the winner. Um, and it's a really big, a really big result for them um, because. I think after the impressive uh, midweek win against Fulham, they had to follow that up with, with a good result here mm. against a struggling side. And they were five minutes away from dropping points at home to Luton, which would not have been good enough. Um, so it feels like uh, in, over the course of the season, that could be a goal they look back on um, as being fairly important if they are going to get in the top six. They're third, but you said that surprises you given that run of form that they were on. Are we close to having a discussion about the quality of the division this year, it's something that people often ask. It's a its a discussion that I find difficult. I think comparing groups of teams across different seasons and years is, is very difficult, personally. But you're normally 
more willing to, to discuss this sort of thing. If you've got this group of teams below West Brom and Leeds, um, how well or poorly does it reflect on them that we're not considering any of them to be particularly good and yet we've got a team in third? Well, I've been pressing are obviously very good. It's just it's a surprise to see a team who've, you know, we can say they've undergone a really tricky spell very recently and they're still in third position. Um, I think the quality of the league this season is, is fairly poor. I don't think that this West Brom team would necessarily stay up in the Premier League. Um, I think Leeds will continue to improve as they get there. Um, I think Brentford, are, are, for me, are quite clearly the third team. But inconsistencies early on in the season have probably ended their chance of getting an automatic promotion. Unless Someone did ask us, slip up. do any teams realistically have a chance of pushing up into that top two? I think Brentford's do. If, but you're you're relying on a form on, on the you know the form of one of those teams at least one of those teams breaking down um, to a degree that seems fairly unlikely with Leeds because even in games where they drop points like like the Cardiff 3 or draw even in games that they may lose they will always or they seemingly always dominate because the you know the the, the tactical level that they um, are playing at just is you know most teams can't really live with mm. it don't have the, the defensive capabilities or don't have a manager in the, in the opposition dugout who can who can combat it so when you're dominating in every game it's going to be very hard to drop the amount of points they now need to drop with West Brom it does feel possibly more likely I think it's you're still looking at them losing yeah four or five in mm. a row with other teams well not in a row but over a period of time where these other teams we're talking about will have to be winning at the rate of, of, of Leeds and West Brom, which is basically two and a half points per game pretty much over the last 10 games or so. But if you look at their recent, their recent games, so Preston, they scored a very, very late penalty, which wasn't a penalty to win the game. Against Wigan, they was a keeper howler. Um, they let them back in and Wigan shaded the match mm. itself. Against Birmingham, they're, they're two one down with five minutes to go. This isn't the same level. I mean, they're winning these games. Obviously, the Swansea performance was the, their best of the season and was a complete domination. But they're not exerting the same level of dominance in game kind of gameplay as Leeds are. And the fact that he dropped Diangana or rested Diangana and Pereira against Wigan, I think, is quite significant because it shows us. It's the first sign that we've seen from Bilic where he understands that a couple of the players that he's got are young and probably won't be able to do this for all season trying to protect them a little bit and the performance level dropped so um, you know just dropped massively so you're wondering again is there going to have to be time soon where he's going to have to make that same call and how is that going to impact them as well so um, you know they obviously have a very big squad but those two creative players are so important to what they're doing at the moment um, so they'll be I mean they're two points clear I'd be amazed if they don't get promoted but they're the one team who I wouldn't be We've seen Preston do it. We saw Brentford do it earlier on in the season. We're seeing Fulham doing it now. All these teams have had stretches where they just are really struggling to pick up wins. And it wouldn't be a massive surprise to me to see West Brom go on one of those at some stage. Not that I think they necessarily will. Yeah, and if you picked one to, to get up there, it sounds like it would be Brentford. Bs at the moment. Yeah. They had a great week. I think, and Sheffield Wednesday as well. Um, because since Gary Monk's come in, they have been as good as anyone in, in the division. And they are creating chances and putting them away with ease. Um, but you, we don't know what's going to happen with the sanctions for um, the FFP uh, charge, related charge. So, um, what, so it's what are you enjoying to... about bees at the moment? They beat Cardiff in midweek. Uh, they were comfortable in the first half. Cardiff didn't really lay a glove on them, and then in the second, they had a, a relatively bees-esque, I would say, or the old bees anyway, wobble for about twenty twenty-five minutes. Uh, it was sort of kicked off, and this is slightly flippant, but. Ben Rama did a Rabona cross after about 50 minutes at 2-0, which went straight into the arms of the keeper. And there was just a slight sense that that was the wrong thing to do at the wrong time, that they weren't far enough ahead. And Cardiff got back into it and caused a few problems. There was one big miss for sure. But generally, actually, after a, a, a good substitution from Frank, who went to three at the back, brought Jean Vier on, uh, Brentford saw that game out. And then, unbelievably impressive in this game against Fulham, which can only be described as a 1-0 massacre, I think it's fair to say. A clean sheet against Mitrovic and co. Um, with Janssen especially impressive. They could have scored four or five. I think everyone who has seen the highlights will agree with. Um, this is you know, Bees doing things that, that Bees didn't used to do. Seeing games out against very direct teams, against aerial onslaughts. Uh, and their front three, as good as 
any Brentford attack we've seen in the last few years, uh, which is saying quite a lot because they've always had talented players. They're calling them BMW now. Ben Rama, <laughs> no. Bomo and Watkins. Are you having that? No. No? BMW I mean, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with it, no. um, but I don't think I'm going to be saying it too much. <laughs> um, but obviously they, you know, on Saturday, West Brom host Brentford in a game that's going to be pretty significant for the top end of that table because you'd think that Brentford will have to win that in order to... I mean, if Brentford win that game, not only is it a six-pointer in the um, you know in the truest sense of the word and will put Brentford 10 points behind West Brom, but that will also expose them a bit and it'll ask them the question going on further. So I think if Bees can win that, that game out of the Hawthorns, it's going to be more than just a game points-wise. It'll also mean that West Brom are going to have to do something they haven't really had to do yet where they'll have to bounce back from a defeat under pressure. Um, Feels like Brentford at the moment are getting strong performances from a, a group of 12 or 13 players, which maybe they've not quite had in previous years. Uh, Norgard didn't start on the weekend. Makocho was brilliant in that defensive midfield position. Norgard himself has been excellent in the last few months. Jensen finding his feet uh, and plenty of quality in that right foot and, and starting to get used to the pace of the division. De Silva, of course, has burst onto the scene. That front three we spoke about and a defence that has only conceded 17 goals in 22 games, which is the second best defence in the league. It's it's really exciting times for Bees. The the system that Thomas Frank is playing seems to get the best out of the team. Uh, we know that they can switch in game to three at the back if need be, and uh, it's pretty good signs for them, I think it's fair to say. Their, their opponent, Fulham, on the flip side, barely laid a glove on them, desperately disappointing. They've lost three games in a row, and with that comes... Plenty of pressure on Scott Parker. It was only 10 days ago, probably, we answered a question on Sky Sports about whether, uh, considering the strength of their squad on paper, um, could potentially be rivals of, of West Brom and Fulham, but whether it was the manager and the comparison between Bilic and Bielsa that might hold them back truly. Uh, it's difficult to get away from that as we sit here today over the weekend. Some interesting comparisons being made with potentially with Darren Moore last season. Um, when you think back to how we analysed and spoke about that Darren Moore West Brom team that was always third or fourth in this league, but never felt to us like they had any discernible style of play or particularly good processes, to use a, a slightly knobby word. Um, knobby. But, but what do you think about this Fulham side and, and Scott Parker? Do you think the Darren Moore comparisons are fair? inexperienced manager not getting the best out of a team that expects to be up there? I mean, when you look at the squad <clears throat> that he has, it's very hard to draw any other conclusion as him being the weakest link. And and because also there's no... You know, it's kind of a similar story to the... To, you know, how we talk about what's going on in the Premier League with Ljungberg and, and Solskjaer. Like, there's, there's no reason for him necessarily to be good at this job. He's obviously a very passionate guy. He was obviously a very, very good player. Um, but, you know, tactically, this is... Some people are kind of cut out for it. We saw, obviously, Lampard doing good things at Derby last year and, and doing good things now at Chelsea. But there, there's no there's no reason necessarily. I mean, he's he hasn't got the job on merit, let's say that. So when you have got the amount of talent they've got in terms of whether it's Knockhart, who obviously was dropped for Saturday, or whether it's Caballero, or whether it's Kearney, who's dominated this, this division you know, 18 months ago, uh, whether it's Mitrovic up front, who's obviously scoring, but it's a manager's job to turn that into something great. And you can basically look at the top 12 teams in the championship right now and look at their managers and be pretty confident that most of them would be getting a better tune out of out of this squad. Um, you think about what, what Gary Monk's doing at Sheffield Wednesday right now. I'm pretty sure if you gave Monk this Fulham squad, he would be getting more points and more wins and more goals out of them th than Scott Parker is. But having said that, that doesn't necessarily mean that Parker's going to be a bad manager. They've invested in someone as a long-term project. And I'm sure, just in the same way that I'm totally convinced that Frank Lampard is a far better manager now than he was 12 months ago, I'm sure that if they decide that they want Scott Parker being the person to run the football club and they just accept that the promotion may not come this season, then it could be a good thing to do in the long term. I The thing that I find puzzling about it is that I've seen Fulham fans lamenting his inability to make changes in games. Um, especially on the back of the Brentford game whereas that's the one thing that I've seen from him so far that I think has been impressive okay. the, the game that I saw at Craven Cottage against Charlton he made a big tactical switch and it got them back into the game 
we saw them against QPR where they were absolutely battered for the first half an hour of the game and he managed to kind of arrest that performance level and turn it around and, 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 and they ended up getting the win. So, yeah, it, it's difficult to be particularly positive about, about Parker, but I think fans in the club need to work out what their priorities are because if it's if it's going up this season, then I think the decision needs to be made now. Most concerning thing is how easy it seems to be to get through them, get at them, get into their box and, and create good chances. Uh, Mawson is having a notably poor season, I, I would suggest, given what we expected from him. And, well, Kenny is a, a bit of a luxury player to have in your midfield. That's fine if you have the Steph Johansson of two years ago and the Kevin McDonald of two years ago. But, again, Johansson, for me, I know the fans still enjoy his work rate and 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 a perceived a perceived ability to to track you know to defend to screen but every time i watch him it looks to me like he's slow easy to beat commits a lot of fouls and he's a player that frustrates me a lot and Josh Onuma is also playing behind Kearney another player who i wouldn't consider to be a great screen in front of a back four so plenty to be concerned about for Fulham let's Get positive with another team that went two from two, George Millwall, probably the team of the week in in reality in the championship. Uh, It's 18 points from nine games under Gary Rowett, two points per game, and away wins at Bristol City and at Derby, which, uh, as Rowett said afterwards, were not particularly similar performances, but showed two different ways of, of, of... picking up away wins in this league which is a hell of a skill and a skill that Millwall have really rarely had since they rejoined this division a few years ago the, the two different ways one of one being Wallace and one not being Wallace <laughs> basically because uh, I think that was the thing that stood out here and in, in the derby result that it was a good performance a deserved victory and it wasn't the Jed Wallace show um, which is saying something in itself I mean they only had seven shots in the match they largely kept Derby at bay. Brilliant, brilliant goal from Tom Bradshaw. Um, you know, really, really clever touch and a fantastic finish as well from a player that I do really like. And I think that under the right manager, he could be someone who, you know, he's been prolific in the past, not in the championship, but you do feel like if you can get him fit and with a decent team around him, he's definitely got the ability to, to you know, have a, a similar effect as, as someone like Scott Hogan has done in the past where he comes alive in the box and is a very adept finisher. Um, but with Millwall at the moment, they... I mean, I mentioned Gary Monk a second ago. If there's anyone out there who thinks that, you know, you and I or the media generally get too caught up in in manager trends and, and what managers do and the impact on teams. I mean, they are two examples of how much a manager can do in a short space of time with the same set of players because both Millwall and Sheffield Wednesday look like completely different teams now. Um, and it's largely the same. Well, it is the same personnel mm. doing it. Um, I don't know what that says for Neil Harris and Cardiff going forward, but uh, but it's been really impressive what Rout has done since he's come in. And um, I guess on the other side of this, you've got Philippe Koku, who, you know, with the news coming out that, that Mark Van Bommel's been relieved of his duties at, at PSV, I think there are a few Derby fans are probably hoping that they might come calling for uh, mm. for their old manager because it's getting fairly desperate now. Do you think there's, in terms of the tide turning, I still feel like the majority of Derby fans want this to work and, and actually are not pinning this on the manager as, as much as you might see a different type of manager or a different set of fans doing in this situation. But, you know, the, they were clinging on to home form. That's clearly a bit of a flash in the pan with a result like this. They are obviously discussing the exciting arrival of, of Wayne Rooney in a few weeks' time to, to be part of their playing staff. Uh, people wondering whether Rooney might be ready to be anointed manager if Koku does go. Uh, it's a difficult situation for Derby at the moment, but they've only won six games out of 22 this season. They are eight points clear of the relegation zone. I think any discussion of relegation is probably a little exaggerated, but it's certainly a tough watch at the moment. Creatively, they're desperately poor. Um, they're, they're clearly not good enough at keeping teams at bay, at restricting teams as well. And uh, Slightly concerning, I think it's fair to say. Barnsley, five. I was just going to say on, on Derby, I mean, it, it's their next two games are Reading and Wigan away. And I would say it's fairly significant that if you're a Reading fan or a Wigan fan or anyone who works at the club, you're looking as, at that as being a winnable game. And, you know, that shows how far they've fallen this season. They were the playoff finalists last campaign. Um, and, 
you know, we're now in December and Wigan, who are a team who are desperately, desperately poor, have probably got that game circled as being one that they should be looking to win, um, which doesn't bode very well for Mr. Koku. Yeah, looking at their fixtures now, I mean, very much believers in the old no easy games at this level, but they have probably got the easiest run of eight of eight fixtures between now and the beginning of February that, that you could really have in the division. Uh, almost all of them bottom half teams. Uh, I think the best team they play in terms of league position is Hull at home. Hull are 14th. So a huge chance for Derby in the last in the next eight games. Do you to... think Philippe Koku will still be manager at the end of that, that run? Yes, I think he will. I really do think he will. And I think Wayne Rooney will have 10 goals in his first five <laughs> games. <laughs> Playing Holly Midfield. Yeah, exactly. 10 penalties they're going to win. Um, let's talk about a couple Aging more like fun a bits. fine Sardinian wine. Nice. Let's uh, let's talk about a few more bits. You know who else is aging like a fine Sardinian wine, which we didn't think necessarily he was? Jordan Rhodes. Yeah. A first half hat trick that came out of nowhere. But as I tweeted on Saturday, a true bagsman never dies, only hibernates. I thought you were talking about Charlie Austin before I looked at that as well. Well, you could say the same about him. Mm. He did go through a... a, a Not quite so barren, yeah. Barren spell. But Rhodes hadn't scored for what, 20 days short of a year? Yeah. It didn't look like it, did it? He's another Gary Monk striker banging in the goals. Well, that's, you know, I think Gary Monk has maybe heard me going on, you know, any platform possible and uh, saying how good he is as strikers because he just decided to play two on Saturday just to see if they're <laughs> both scoring. And they both did. Uh, a brilliant hat-trick from Rhodes. I mean, it's it's a funny one with him because he's a player who... You know, through his throughout his twenties or early twenties, till about two years ago, he was like the championship score player that everyone was like, he needs to have a chance in the Premier League. Yeah, the, and all he did was score goals. And then he had that kind of bizarre role at Norwich last season. He only made nine starts. He came off the bench twenty-five odd times, only scored six goals. But they really rated him for his, you know, his it was kind of ball playing ability mm. for him being that kind of second striker who could link up play and, and play with his back to goal, which was just a totally different player to what we what we've come to know um, at Blackburn and at Middlesbrough. Very popular as a man as well, by all accounts. Lovely man. Within teams, Lovely man. I mean. Play, scored a fantastic goal for Oxford when he was 17 in the FA Cup against Merthyr Tydfil. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he, so for him to kind of put in this performance back to being an absolute wizard in the six-yard box, I mean, the third goal is a, a brilliantly taken reflex bicycle kick. It was a bicycle, we'll probably call it an overhead kick rather than a bicycle kick. Um, he just didn't look like a guy who'd, who'd lost a scoring knack. He didn't look like a guy who's, who's been playing a bit of a different role for the last couple of years. I don't know what Gary Monk does to strikers, but if I was a player who was um, struggling for goals, I would want to play under him because he seems to have just the Midas touch. Well, those goals took him ahead of Billy Sharp as the m- top goal scorer at championship level since the beginning of the 2009-10 season. So what I'm calling the decade but there was half a season, which was still in 2009. He's got 107 goals in that time. Sharp, the second most with 106. Uh, Rhodes has done it in in fewer minutes. He scores his goals quicker in that time frame, every 177 minutes. Uh, Out of guys to have scored more than 50 goals, there's only four or five guys who score them at a quicker rate than him. People like Gale, Mitrovic, Charlie Austin, Graben, um, and Glenn Murray and Gary Hooper. So he's in he's in very, very good company there. And it was brilliant to see him back and scoring a sensational first-half performance from Sheffield Wednesday. And Forrest showing some, some frailties. They certainly will need to react to that if their fans are to continue um, loving Lamucci and loving the, the start to the season, which was so positive. Uh, the, the most fun game of the weekend was Barnsley 5, QPR 3. Another hat-trick as well from... Connor Chaplin looks absolutely electric under Mr. Gerhard Struber. Uh, and Barnsley going forward, not just this game, but they genuinely do look electric, create chance after chance. I mean, we know they're terrible at the back. You know, they've conceded three again here, but finally they've scored goals and won a game. And it does feel like, it, for the fans, it feels as simple as can we bring in one or two experienced defenders to shore up our back line in January? Is that realistic? I'm not sure how much money there is to spend necessarily without selling. It's hard to think apart from someone like Woodrow who might command a transfer fee big enough to to raise funds for 
two solid championship level defenders. But I'm really starting to believe in Struber and what he could potentially do here. For me, they're, they're certainly not a team to write off. I definitely don't think they're a team to write off. I agree. Um, funny to have eight goals in a game with, with 22 shots. That's a fairly impressive conversion rates. But um, and I think Ian Holloway has been listening to the pod given that he uh, he lifted my line about Woodrow and, and the you know how much of a masterstroke it's been from Struber to move a player who's played all his career playing as a striker into that number 10 role. I think he almost certainly has not been listening to the pod, <laughs> but it's possible that he heard it in passing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, really impressive. I mean, the issue is with the recruitment is that even though I know Barnsley fans are convinced they recruited terribly in the summer, I'm pretty sure Diaby and Anderson, amongst some other players, will have big futures in the game. Um, it's just not particularly wise to have two 21-year-old centre-backs. Um, so it proves it's going to be a bit of a quandary for Barnsley, who have invested in these guys with the intention of selling them on for a big profit in a couple of years. So they're not going to be particularly willing, I wouldn't have thought, to bring in two 28-year-old cloggers um, to come in and play ahead of them. So maybe they'll bring one in um, who's a bit older and a bit more of an experienced head, but I'd, I wouldn't hold my breath. There's going to be wholesale changes in, in terms of defensive personnel. One team we've got to talk about before we move on. It's not Bristol City who lost both home games this week. Uh, this time last week, we spoke about them off the back of such an impressive away win at Fulham, uh, an away win that hadn't surprised us because we knew that they have the blueprint for success in away games. But we said it's when they beat your Millwalls and your Blackburns at home that we will start truly believing in them. They lost both of those games. And it's back to, to doom and gloom. It's streaky Lee Johnson at his absolute best. Absolute worst, I would say. Absolute best. Um, but Blackburn beat them. They were good for the win, a 2-0 win. And it was sort of your big surprise of the weekend, which you shared with your Twitter followers. WTF, Blackburn, only one point behind Fulham. EFL, WTF. I think I'm going to make it into regular series um, <laughs> because there's always uh, stuff going on. But it's, you know, we have been asked a few questions by Blackburn fans over the last couple of months saying how long can Mowbray stay? When are they going to show Mowbray the door? Yet, they are a team who, you know, even the most ambitious um, Blackburn fan can't have expected them to be in the, in the playoffs. It was an outside chance always. And yet, there they are one or two points outside on a you know magnificent run of form. I'm sure that the run isn't going to continue. Um, but you kind of look at their their team, or at least their 11 on paper, and it is, it's really good. Like, it's really impressive. And, and if you're looking, sometimes we see teams come up and challenge for playoff spots and you have a look at their squads and you think, actually, you know, this is a bit of a flash in the pan. They don't have the quality to stay there. But in terms of their 11 or 12, I mean, they brought Rothwell and Armstrong off the bench on Saturday. That's two very, very good players to be able to call upon. Um, Bradley Dack didn't play um, due to injury. Sorry, due to, uh, to, due to suspension. Um, and they didn't miss him whatsoever. Uh, Holtby I think has been a very shrewd signing who's starting to really make an impact there as well it's up top where they're probably a bit light because um, I mean with Dak normally being the player who they can rely on for goals uh, Danny Graham as well now you're looking at I can see someone say if only we could get that 20 goal a season striker that everyone's looking for and I was thinking we've You've got Dak, yeah, who's exactly. borderline 20 goal a season, number 10. You can't have two of them. Um, it doesn't matter, <laughs> unless you're Peterborough. We can have three. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but Gallagher doesn't strike me as someone who's going to score that many goals, I agree. And, and Brereton started, which was good to see. You, you touched on Armstrong's average goal-scoring record as well. He took the goal very well on Saturday. But, but I just, I, you know, they're a team who've snuck into this conversation. And as we've kind of touched upon earlier, there, there aren't very many good teams in around the playoffs. So I, I don't think it would take much um for Blackburn to really assert themselves as being as being contenders to, to get into that that top six only thing I would say to pour cold water on this to to a certain extent is both Y Scout and Mike Holden's Fox Punter XG ratings have them as the worst attacking team in the championship which will surprise you um massively overperforming their expected goals this season. So um, that's fine when you have a very good defence, which they have Tosin and uh, and Lenehan at the back looking really solid. I think Lewis Travis is maybe someone that we... Are you, are you and Tosin on first one, first name terms then? Yes. Is that right? Are. Okay, yeah. cool. That's nice. I didn't know that. What do you know him as? Blackburn's number 24. Nice. Okay, brilliant. Well, let's just touch on Lewis Travis here. We don't talk about him enough probably. He's only 22 years old. He has broken through the academy here to become 
a key part, probably the key player in Blackburn's midfield. Um, if you look at the stats of the games he's been involved in and, and when he's been missing, it's quite clear that they miss him when he's not there. He compliments Bradley Johnson well, which we saw on the weekend. He works very well with Corey Evans as well. And he just seems like a very clever mid- midfield player, a good all-rounder. Uh, and obviously someone who's come through the academy, which we always like to see. Just 22 years old as well. Lewis Travis, definitely someone to watch. In League One, George, Wickham won 2-0 against Burton. They hadn't played a league game for two weekends. We've got three questions, which I'm going to read side by side, and then we can get into Wickham discussion. C. Jarvis on Instagram said, are Wickham going to run away with it? On Twitter, we were asked, are Wickham the story of the EFL season? And James Lawson said, at what point do Wickham become League One's version of 2016 Leicester, where their promotion becomes inevitable? Every time I think they might slip up, they produce another competent performance and gain three more points. He's certainly right about the competent performances and the gaining of so many points. Six clean sheets in a row as well. They've become, I think, the bookies' favourite since the weekend with Ipswich losing to Bristol Rovers, the first time they've actually been the bookies' favourite. And they have got a hell of a gap now opening up. They do. I mean, I should really be answering these questions next Monday when I'd have just seen them playing live um, because I'm going to our game against them on on Saturday. Uh, But, you know, to try and remember what those questions were. um, Are they going to run away with it? No. Are they the story of the EFL season? Yes. (laughs) At what point do they become League One's version of 2016 Leicester? Yeah, I mean... Might they be League One's version of 2017, 18 Shrewsbury? The thing is, we, we flagged up after the Tranmere game um, the, the Champions League game that is that their fixtures were about to get a lot tougher since then they've beaten Doncaster they've beaten Burton they've drawn 0-0 at Ipswich in a game where they were second best they've got Oxford Portsmouth Coventry Ipswich Sunderland coming up now so I mean if if they can, can maintain their current level of form throughout through that spell then yeah they probably are going to run away with it because this is the time where they're seemingly going to drop points um you know two trips in you know two trips to to oxford and to portsmouth in five days of each other over christmas is really 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 tricky um so is the chasing pack good enough to to leap well, on any dropped points that they might make that's the key thing is is it doesn't look like it um every single team below them is prone to, to dropping points um and it's but it's just hard to see how it's possible for them to be of much higher quality than the rest of the league. Uh, we've spoken at length about how much we respect Gareth Ainsworth as a manager. Um, the players they have at their disposal as well are quite clearly uh, more than capable. But Nigel Clough came away from this game on Saturday thinking that he, he had the better team on the day. And I'm pretty sure he's not the only manager to, to leave Adams Park feeling like his team at least deserves something and getting absolutely nothing. Um, I'd be amazed if they can maintain this through, you know, through into mid-January, as we uh, as we said. Um, but we, there does come a stage where we kind of sound like a broken record, of, mm. as we keep saying it, when they continue to do so well. Yeah, so much to be impressed with. Certainly, that defensive record of six clean sheets in a row. Uh, our favourite League One analyst and expert, Ollie Walker. Uh, has written about this on on Twitter today, so we would point you towards his Twitter feed. We did share this uh, earlier at NTT20pod if you want to check it out. Basically digging into the extent to which they may have been lucky or just pure, purely good in this run of, of clean sheets, the last run of eight games where they've been absolutely excellent. And I think, as with all of these things, there's plenty of nuance. There's a little from column A and a little from column B. They really do reduce the opposition to few chances and when they do have chances generally low quality chances quite often a lot of blocked shots very very tough to to get through um, fairly confident at dealing with crosses and just generally restricting the opposition to a very impressive extent over the last few weeks over the last few months Uh, going forward definitely not one of the league's most potent attacking sides but certainly running very hot as well converting their chances at a high level Um, They are clearly a team that is elevated by the way they're being coached. They're also clearly a team, for me, that's being elevated by the character, the personality of both the individual players and of the squad itself, the way that it carries out its manager's 
instructions on the pitch, which is uh, something that can elevate teams massively at this level. And there aren't too many managers, if you look down the league, who you'd say they are so clearly uh, making their team better than the sum of its parts. So, um, you know, that big run of games coming up, it'll be so interesting to see where we are in a month's time. I'm looking forward to revisiting this discussion. Uh, The big news in League One over the weekend revolved around Bristol Rovers and Graham Coughlin. I'm pretty sure I've pronounced his name about four different ways. Coughlin, Coughlin, Coughlin. Yes, exactly. He, I mean, this is a remarkable situation. Yeah. Hard to imagine what it feels like for Bristol Rovers fans. I will give a bit of context to anyone who might have missed this. Rovers beat Ipswich Town away from home on the weekend to go fourth in League One. Uh, A year on from sacking popular manager Daryl Clark and giving the job to Graham who has done such a wonderful job both to save them from relegation last season and to put together this very difficult to beat team that is getting the absolute maximum out of its uh, out of its players and out of its well out of its goals they've only scored 29 uh, which is doesn't compare that well to some of the teams around them uh, their goal difference of plus 4 shows that their games generally are very tight but certainly in recent weeks, with four wins in a row, they've come out the wrong side. So the manager, clearly a man that's impressing everyone. And after the game, he does a very strange press conference where it becomes quite clear that he's slightly agitated and not particularly happy and hinting that his time at the club could be up. It doesn't take too long for the news to break via the Bristol Post that he is in line for the manager's job at Mansfield Town who sacked John Dempster at about 8pm. As of today, we know that Bristol Rovers have allowed them to speak to him, having initially rejected two approaches, and seem fairly powerless to to stop Coughlin leaving to to go to Mansfield. There's one bit of personal information that is pertinent here. Uh, His family is in Sheffield. He has been away from his family for work purposes for a long time. And being in Mansfield would put him significantly closer, just 45 minutes away, I think, from Sheffield, Mansfield. So there's personal reasons, but there's certainly a feeling that this is quite bizarre timing and has been carried out in quite a strange way. I know you've got quite big opinions on what this means for Bristol Rovers and what this <coughs> means for their unlikely promotion tilt. If I was a Bristol Rovers fan, I would be quite positive about this which I know sounds bizarre given the alarming um, turnaround of fortunes that, that Bristol Rovers have undergone since Coughlin's been in the job. But I, it's a, it sounds a bit hypocritical after talking earlier on in the podcast about how much managers can make an impact. But Graham Coughlin was at the club before Daryl Clark left. He was part of Daryl Clark, Clark's coaching staff. And I'm not having for one second that Coughlin is some kind of managerial genius who stepped into his first role at a League One club and has proven himself to be, um, you know, a manager who's who's going to be able to take teams, take struggling teams towards the top ends of tables. And part of the reason I'm sure why he's going to move to Mansfield um, will be financial, which you can't blame him for, but you have to assume, given the the amount of money that the Mansfield have invested into their, their playing side and their, their uh, non-playing side in the past. And I think he probably realises that he's riding something of a crest of a wave and probably needs to not cash in but needs to take this opportunity whilst he can because if you had told him you know 12 months ago that he'd be a sort after league one manager I, th- I don't think he necessarily would have believed it mm. Bristol Rovers are in a brilliant position now where they are you know in the playoff spots in fourth position in league one so for any if you think about the pool of managers who is available looking at the likes of Nathan Jones they are going to be a very attractive um job to take on irrespective of the issues about you know the financial issues off the pitch irrespective of the fact that both the previous last two managers have seemingly felt let down by the lack of investment in the playing staff at at times because you're offering a manager a decent opportunity to get into the championship next Mm -hmm. season so I think if you're going to lose your manager doing so at this stage is no bad thing, especially when there are other managers out there who who could step in, who have far more pedigree than the one going out. Uh, Coughlin himself doesn't strike me as a, as a particularly good tactician. It's seemingly all about his man management skills. You see in every every match that Bristol Rovers win, he's always crediting the players and the spirit 
um, that they have. And if that is true, and if this is a squad of players who are very, very, you know, who work well together, who are very hardworking, then that should map over for whoever's coming in next. We saw that happen at Luton last season when, at about this time last year, when Nathan Jones left the club, a lot of people were saying they were going to fall away. But all it took was just someone to come in and say, look, this is a good squad of players. They know what they're doing. They're well drilled. Just let them keep doing it. Do you think someone who's known by the club, a club legend like Mick Harford was, someone like Ian Holloway seems like a popular option with the Bristol Rovers fans? Could he, could he keep issue, things going well, in that the, way? I, I, I think Holloway would want to do things his own way, I would guess. Um, I mean, this could work two ways. Either you do that, you get someone in, in who just says, like, look, con- continuation, or you try and get in you know, use the position you're in in fourth place and try and get in a manager who's maybe a bit bigger than, than mm. the club itself. You um, talk about Nathan Jones, uh, Paul Heckingbottom is obviously and, available yeah, at the moment, exactly. having left Hibs. Exactly. I wonder whether these guys would come, but even in League Two at the moment, you've got Paul Hurst, who has done a job with the Shrewsbury team that reminds me a little bit of this Bristol Rovers side. Uh, at League One level, a very good job. You've got Richie Wellens pulling up trees with Swindon, Mike Duff as well, a Cheltenham side that I think doesn't I th- look that dissimilar in terms of their style of play with this Bristol Rovers side. I'm sure Paul Tisdale, Tisdale will be in yeah, touch. Yeah, I, th- I think those are the guys. I'd be surprised if if you know if the Swindon manager um, or if Paul Hurst kind of jumped ship to go to go there. I mean, Hurst. Pro- I'm just saying the ones would. you would, you would try yeah. to have a go at, whether it's realistic or not. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, but I just think, that it, and for, for Mansfield, it just seems like such a Mansfield move. Um, the way the club, the, the club seems to be run on whims very often and hiring a bloke who has done really, really well uh, for the past year, but it is his first job. So there's not much to go on except for just this this run. It just, just feels quite Mansfield, mm. to be honest. Um, we've seen it before in the recruitment of players where they sign players for, for a fair sum of money on the back of, of hot streaks. And the chopping and changing, and the amount of, of changes that, that they make at the club. Um, I mean, they're they're looking at this, thinking we're getting the manager of the fourth place team in League One. Exactly, but I, I'm just not necessarily here to give him full credit for that. Okay, um, I think they're probably in something of a false position, and it makes sense for Coughlin to, you know, he probably understands that. He probably thinks it's unlikely for them to finish in the top six. So, as I say, take the. Take the move closer to home. That's probably going to be more financially beneficial. But hopefully, Bristol Rovers can can spin that into a positive by making the most of their position to recruit someone who's going to really benefit the football club. Let us know what you guys think at NTT Twenty Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. We'll keep a very close eye over the, on this over the next few days. Uh, Ipswich were on the wrong end of that result against Bristol Rovers. That's three draws for them, followed by a defeat. Uh, they are still in second place because of such a, a good start to the season. 36 points from their 19 games. One place above Posh, who beat Bolton fairly comfortably. Um, and Posh have played a game more than Ipswich. So certainly all is not lost. There's a feeling that this run has come at a poor time for, for the Ipswich fans who were quite enjoying their stint in League One and are now, as you would be, starting to to, to worry that they might slide out of automatic promotion contention. Uh, what do you think about... This run, G Danger seventy three said, "What does Paul Lambert need to do to turn things around? Have you identified anything in this Ipswich side that you think they could do better? I note that they started on the weekend, and I'm sure there's injury reasons for this. With Caden Jackson, Will Keane, and James Norwood all on the pitch, seems unusual to me. That doesn't scream balance to me. Three well, central I think, strikers. I, I think that probably that speaks volumes. I think that Paul Lambert needs to not do too much." not you know make wholesale cha- wholesale changes to this team not change the tactics because they were dominant a few weeks ago and they've gone through a a, st- a sticky spell but the worst thing you can possibly do is therefore tear up everything that's been working beforehand and um, they still have the personnel to be very very good you know we, we spoke about it with, with Preston recently during their bad spell it was never going to last long you have to just keep doing what you know is right remain remain kind of remain true to your beliefs and Starting Keane, Norwood and Jackson, three you know genuine strikers up front, um, it doesn't <laughs> look like something that, that that Lambert would have done a few weeks ago. And Lambert himself said ahead of the game that he was taken aback by the negativity surrounding this run. Well, I mean, in your own way, that kind of knee-jerk reaction in terms of, of, of um, team selection 
is his own version of that, I would say. Mm. So just getting back to, I mean, we said at the time as well, Ipswich's defence was never, ever going to be as, um, you know, as mean as it was being at that time over the course of the season. They haven't kept a clean sheet in four or five games now. Um, that was always going to happen. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that just like other other runs, they've got Pompey next, which is very, very tricky. Then they host Gillingham. I'm sure they'll be back to winning ways pretty soon. And, and I still think that they are the most likely winners of this league. One team that has got an undeniably good defence is Shrewsbury. Uh, that back three of Aaron Pierre, Ethan Ebanks-Landell and Roshan Williams making it very difficult for the opposition at the moment. They, and they got an excellent win on the weekend uh, from behind victory Shrewsbury against Coventry, who had played so well in the first half. Uh, look, Shrewsbury are up in 11th place very quietly. I think that represents punching above their weight. Uh, a bit like Bristol Rovers, they, uh, they they make the most out of tight games, I think it's fair to say. They've only scored 18 goals in 19 games, which is very, very poor, but they've only conceded 20. So they're absolutely doing the, the most out of what they've got. I think it's a quietly impressive job uh, from Sam Ricketts, even if it's not one that always excites the fans. If Wickham and Bristol Rovers are the, the sort of headliners of the punching above their weight teams in League One. Shrewsbury, I would say, probably third place there. Tell me about MK Dons' first win for absolutely ages because you were there and you were, you, I think, quietly impressed, quietly surprised about what you saw from MK Dons. Nothing quiet about it. I thought they were really good. They were one of the best teams I think I've seen us face this season, which is bonkers to say that given... Reflects well on Russell Martin, doesn't reflects it? Reflects really well on them. Um, they... I would say the football that they played wasn't necessarily particularly, um, and there was no, I'm not sitting here saying they were an amazing football team, but they were very, very uh, solid. And the way they set up made it very hard for Oxford to get the ball in any kind of space whatsoever. Um, the back four of Lewington, Walsh, Poole and, and Britain were really, really impressive. And then with Houghton sitting just in front of them, um, yeah, they they basically just dominated the game. Uh, after going ahead, Oxford had a couple of forays forward, uh, with Chris Cadden getting some space down the right-hand side, but really, it was pretty comfortable. Um, a few things that I'll kind of pick out. The first was the formation that Martin played was really interesting, where he kind of played Agard and Mason. Uh, Mason was the was the class player on the pitch, without question. But they played Agard and Mason as kind of a front two, but a wide front two, with Hiram Boteng almost playing as... I mean, it wasn't really a false nine. It was almost like a, an attacking midfielder out of possession and then almost a striker in possession. Mm-hmm. And it worked really well. We didn't really have an answer for it. Um, so that was interesting to, to see Martin kind of take someone like Boateng and play him in a different role. Um, and then Mason is going to be a massive asset for him. You know, he's someone who's we've seen before has the talent to be playing at a much, much higher level. Um, he's got big moves in the past to, to Wolves and to Cardiff. He's been injured for most of the season. I'm pretty sure that um, Paul Tisdale would have been a, would have liked would have liked the opportunity to have been able to rely on a player that he brought in in the summer. But... Since coming back, he, he scored in the defeat at Rotherham. He scored um, in the JPT win against Coventry. He played against Doncaster and then he scored against us. He scored three goals in his, in his, in his five games back. Uh, and he looked really, really lively. Um, very, very strong on the ball, a good runner. Um, very, very tricky. So he, I mean, his return to first team duty could be pretty significant for them. And from an Oxford point of view, an exciting week despite that defeat spelling the end of a long long unbeaten run for the club you're off to the Kassam we're off to the Kassam on Wednesday to see Oxford take on Manchester City in the in the EFL Cup quarter final pretty excited about this one and I think probably the build-up has been made even better by the fact that for the Athletic over the weekend an article that you wrote a sort of preview of sorts uh, a bit of a primer for those who don't know Oxford particularly well about their manager and about some of their key players. You went and interviewed Carl Robinson and got plenty of good things from him. Uh, I, I imagine a fairly lively interviewee who made it quite easy for you in terms <laughs> of uh, not having to ask too many questions per Carl Robinson word. Uh, what what did you make of the experience? How, how was it going to Oxford, your club, to, to interview the manager for the first time? Yeah, it was great. Um, and, you know, I can only thank The Athletic for letting me um, go down there. And, uh, and speak to Carl. Um, as you said, we spoke for about 55 minutes. Um, I definitely didn't expect to be sitting with him for that long. Uh, we walked into his office and there was a bottle of whiskey sitting on the table in his office. And I said, oh, Carl, so you're obviously a, a whiskey man rather than a wine man. And he said, no, no, no. 
I just have that on my desk ready because I have to open it when I hear you stagger me off on Sky Sports, <laughs> which was uh, an interesting way to start the interview. Nervous um, laughter from you? Yeah. Yeah. He also alluded to it again um, during the interview where he said, you know, the fans wanted me out, you included, and then carried on going. Um, but no, he was he was actually lovely. And, you know, speaking selfishly from a, you know, from a fan perspective, I, I definitely left with a higher opinion of him as a not as a man, but as, as a coach, I think. It was really interesting picking his brains about the way that he sees the game. And the thing that really stood out to me was, you know, I tried to, to kind of push him on the technical side of, of how we're preparing for the City game, on the technical side of player development. But he is so focused on the kind of the human side of things and ensuring that Oxford is a good environment for, for young players to grow. You know, a guy who's, he's a guy whose, you know, football career was a non-league. He was then a Liverpool Academy coach. And you can really see that, um, nurturing side of him and he knows that he's got this reputation amongst some fans he really couldn't care less um, all he cares about I mean he'll, he'll tell you that he couldn't care less so I don't know if that means something different but the way that he you know the, he's got this long this long-term vision for Oxford and the development of players which he you know we can see the way he talks about it is much more important than short-term success so yeah in the piece as you'll see we, we speak about about his relationship with Pep Guardiola who's someone that he really admires um, we played them last year in the cup as well so we talk about what he learned from that game and just some interesting stories you know we, we spoke in, in depth about Tariq Fosu who's a player that he really likes spoke a bit about Rob Dickey um, a bit about Shandon Baptiste and yeah hopefully it's an interesting read for people who, who have no real interest in Oxford or MK Dons, but want to learn a little bit more about an interesting guy um, and a club who have undergone a big old change in the last year. My favourite line was when he said, I'm addicted to Spanish football. Mm. Absolutely wonderful. And if you'd like to read this article, if you'd like to read all sorts of other writing around the footballing globe, then The Athletic is really the place to be, the best selection of football writers <clears throat> under one roof that you will find. And if you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20, then you'll get firstly a free trial, secondly 50% off for your first year. If you haven't given The Athletic a go, we would recommend that you do so that you can read George Ellick on paper, on print. <laughs> Uh, as well as listening to all of our podcasts. The last result to touch on in League One is Accrington 4, Portsmouth 1. An absolutely sensational turnaround from an Accrington team that have been threatening to do this for a while. I maintain they are much better than their league position and their current points total. Colby Bishop, who they signed from non-league Leamington in the summer, already in double figures for goals in his first EFL season. We've not even got to Christmas yet. It's an absolutely sensational return. And his strike partner, Dion Charles, as well, with an eye-catching goal, great skill, and a good finish through the goalkeeper's legs. In League Two, George, it wasn't unlike the Championship. I would say a vintage weekend of results. The most impressive wins came from some of the top teams. Northampton beating Forest Green, whose insistence on outperforming the underlying data uh, is starting to dwindle somewhat. They really are struggling to create goals and they're not keeping clean sheets to the same extent that they were. But Northampton's strength from set pieces sees them pick up another three points. A Plymouth made fairly light work of Morecambe, George Cooper, with an exceptional uh, free kick in that one. Really impressive stuff. Uh, and Exeter beating Salford 1-0. The old headed goal from Ryan Bowman in a narrow Exeter win is becoming quite the theme of their season as they look to... to maintain contact with Swindon at the top of the league. They're three points behind them because Swindon won as well. 2-0. Doyle didn't score first, but he did score towards the end. It was a first goal full of quality. Uh, Doughty with a brilliant through ball and Willery with the pace and the finish to put them 1-0 up. Swindon running away with it. But just a couple of general questions about League Two that we had sent in, given that it wasn't such a vintage weekend. Uh, Ed wants to know if Bradford should recall... Owen Doyle. Owen Doyle is the EFL's top goal scorer, top goal scorer in the country, I believe, has scored now in, is it eight or nine consecutive games? I'm losing count. We know that he's a Bradford player. We believe that they can recall him in January. Now, we've spoken before about why they let him go in the first place. He was a high earner and they needed to shift some wages before they could bring some other players in. What do you think about this? I think they should recall him. I can't understand. Well, there have been there have been some quotes from Owen Doyle doing the rounds today, um, and he is very adamant that he's not going back. 
it's not up to him. I know, but he 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 goes as far as saying they've got good strikers. The way they play football doesn't suit me. I don't want to go back. I hope they get promoted. I hope we get promoted too. But it wouldn't make any sense for me to go back. Interesting. So he's obviously trying to put the pressure on. Yeah, because if you're a Bra- if you're a Bradford fan. You know, obviously, right now you are desperate for you to, for the, for, to recall him. But as soon as he's saying in the press, "I don't want to come back. I don't want to play football for them. It doesn't suit me the way I play." Mm. You're probably going to step back a little bit and think, "Like, oh, okay, do we actually really want him back?" I think to take away a key player from a promotion rival, Definitely, as yeah. brutal as that is, yeah. would be first on the agenda. Second on the agenda, while I recognise everything you've said and Doyle never never quite turned it on in a Bradford shirt, what he's been able to do with this Swindon team and how rare it is to have someone who can score at this rate, at any level. If I was Gary Bowyer, I would make changes so that I did get the best out of Owen Doyle. They are a pretty turgid attacking team yeah. as it is Bradford. There need to be improvements if they're to stay in touch with the top three in any case. And I think the presence of Doyle and a sort of compulsion to play away to get the best out of him, that for me would be the way to go. So that's what I would do if I was a Bradford fan. It's not what Swindon fans will want to hear. What, what I would like Bradford to do, I think, is to recall him and then send him on loan to play off chasing League One team Oxford United. He can't play for anyone else. Uh, he's already yeah. played for Bradford and Swindon. I mean, he's completely thriving in this Swindon team. I'm not surprised he wants to stay. I would like him to stay, to be honest, and, and finish the job, get Swindon into League One. But if I was Bradford, Ed, I would recall him, definitely. Connor Thomas wanted to know, do you see Cheltenham getting promotion? It's a tough one, isn't it, George? They're, they're a team that we like. They're in third at the moment in the promotion spots, although there are four teams on 35 points, and so they're at the top of that list. I, I do worry that they're going to struggle a little without Luke Varney. I don't think that they are a particularly good attacking team at this level. But everything that they do defensively and the extent to which they're able to keep other teams at bay generally makes me think that they have got longevity in terms of being up there. There's just something holding me back saying definitively, yes, I do. I I think that's probably down to the, I guess, the size of the club and the pre-season aspirations. It's a similar thing to why we're here reluctant to say that Wickham are going to walk the league because you always expect there to be some kind of a regression towards the mean and there's no denying that Cheltenham have have overperformed anyone's expectations so far this season I remember when I said they were my dark horses to a Cheltenham fan uh, in the summer he kind of laughed at me and said we're not going to be any good so right um and you're right I mean defensively they are so solid and, and that's the key you know, even if they aren't are going to struggle without without Varney's goals and his presence up top, if they can continue the good uh, defensive form, if they can continue to keep teams out, then it's hard to see them really dropping away massively because that's you know that's the key to picking up these points. They're so going to keep them up there, and again, it doesn't feel like a classic edition um, of League Two this season. A classic it's, renewal, yeah. To use a racing phrase, yeah. Um, and I, I I think they're probably going to be there to stay. I, I think that Duff's. Keeping a hold of Duff is going to be important because I'm sure there will be teams circling towards the back end of the season. But they're so solid at the back and they're so well drilled and they're so solid that it's hard to see them going on a really poor run. And the big news in League Two on Sunday, where after such a busy Saturday, we wondered maybe if we could have a rest, if we could have one normal day of EFL action. No, because we've got a new manager. It's a manager of a team right down the bottom of the league in Stevenage. Mark Sampson's caretaker management spell comes to an end and it's a return of Graham Wesley to Stevenage. I think our reaction was one of surprise, one of shock. Touch of the Martin Allens and Barnet about it, isn't it? This is somewhere he has had great success. This is a team that arguably hasn't tasted success as great as it did with Graham Wesley. Does it make sense to you to see him back I mean, the remit is simply to, to keep them in this division. Uh, and I mean, who knows? He, he's a he's a legend there. Uh, he's not a legend anywhere else, but he's a legend there. Um, and a lot of... I was just amazed looking at their fans' uh, reaction, how, you know, it's easy because of his reputation amongst fans. It's easy to forget that, you know, the success that he brought that club and the amazing job, you know, he's done the square root of NAF all since, but the amazing job he did there... Um, to take them up to League One 
um, in those few seasons, um, uh, you know, what, 10 years or so ago. And, you know, for a club who are likely to be um, spending the season trying to maintain their, their league status, bringing in a guy who's knows the club well, who's more experienced than Mark Sampson, um, may not be a bad thing. I mean, I it's going to be interesting watching from afar to see. I mean, I said it's going to be interesting. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be bored of, of Graham Wesley fairly soon. Um, but for the, time, for the time being, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. I'm marking down the fixture on the 14th of January when Stevenage hosts Oldham because in the Oldham dugout will be Dino Mamria who learnt his management trade as Graham Wesley's assistant, uh, notably at Newport. They, uh, they left Newport bottom or certainly in the relegation zone of League Two and that was when Mike Flynn took over. But Mamria, who is known to be someone who talks a lot to the officials and slightly rubs people up the wrong way in opposition dugouts and the suggestion being he learned a lot of what he knows from Graham Wesley. That should be a very spicy affair, which I'm looking forward to a lot and also quite an important game given that Stevenage are 23rd and Oldham are 22nd. Uh, Phil Kay, just to finish us off, said, why have you both made the transition from jumpers to shirts and blazers on TV? Uh, Phil, it's very much a horses for courses type thing, isn't it? We, we're not yet uh, big enough egos to demand that we wear something we tend to be given a, a dress code of sorts in the early days i think as we were podcasters they sort of thought well let's keep them relatively casual new media let's wear a jumper although actually and now it's kind of like get get the suit on it's guys. just a different show you yeah. know yeah for matters was a bit more casual whereas now and on sky sports news i reckon we probably still would wear uh, a shirt and a jumper mm. so yeah i mean it's 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 a developing situation we'll keep you posted um but you know no reason for any alarm Absolutely desperate to get some new jumpers and jackets for Christmas. Can I? I no, because I'm my, just my, tell current, um, my current <laughs> wardrobe is certainly not There was good a enough. little treat for anyone who's still listening. Um, there was an, a lovely moment a couple of weeks ago where Ali had, had treated himself to a new uh, blazer ahead of, um, what was the game two weeks ago? Uh, whatever it was. And, uh, and we sat down and I looked over and it was basically like you had two wings and you hadn't even tried on the jacket that you'd bought. And it was, for someone, about five times the size of you. And there was nothing you could do except wear, uh, except kind of style it out. So well done for you for that. And I think any fashion tips you can give us going forward would be much appreciated. Well, I'm looking forward to getting you back and telling an embarrassing story about you at some point on the next <laughs> podcast. It's too late for this one, guys. But thank you for tuning in. We got through it. We knew it was going to be difficult after a heavy day on Sunday. But hopefully plenty of EFL discussion uh, after what was a very exciting weekend, especially in the championship. So stay tuned for the betting show, second half of the week. Over Christmas, we'll have various different things for you, uh, some mid-season review content, etc. Uh, we, as always, appreciate your support. We hope that you will continue to listen to the pod. And if you've got this far, if you've enjoyed it, if you've enjoyed George telling embarrassing stories about me, then do give us a retweet. It will help us a lot if you could share this with your followers as we look to build and move to 2020 and grow as a podcast. (laughs) 